Hello again, it's your friendly neighborhood host, J.T. Wheatley, back for another episode of the History Comics Podcast, this time with part two for the Battle for Marvel. When we last left off, Marvel had been acquired by Ron Perlman, who had subsequently began a giant acquiring, acquiring spree, running the uh, famed comic publisher into, ba- into near bankruptcy. This all to the um, chagrin of Ike Permiller and the AVA Rod, the owners of Toy Biz, who own Mar- the rights to Marvel's uh, toy license, and were hoping that, that Marvel would actually be expanded into a much more vibrant company. All, of, all during this tumult, a new player entered the arena, Carl Eichen, one of the top financiers in Wall Street at the time. Carl Cecilian Eichen was born on February 16, 1936 in Brooklyn, New York City, New York, the son of two Jewish school teachers. He would later attend Princeton University, graduating with an A.B. in philosophy in 1957. Eichen later attended the New York School of Medicine, but dropped out after two years to join the Army Reserves. In 1961, he started his career as a stockbroker, and by 1968 had amassed $150,000, which, along with a $400,000 loan from his uncle M. Elliot Scholl, was able to buy a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. There he formed Eichen & Company, a securities firm that focused on risk arbitrage and options trading. By 1978, he began buying controlling interest in companies and developing a reputation as a corporate raider, particularly after his takeover of Transworld Airlines, TWA, in 1985, which he he sold off the company's assets to pay off the loan it took to purchase it. In 1988, Icon took TWA private, personally profiting at $469 million, but then leaving it with a debt of $550 million. Icon would later sell its London routes to American Airlines for $450 Five million dollars, and by 2001, the airline was defunct. In 1986, Icon made an unsuccessful seven billion dollar takeover for 89 percent of U.S. steel, though even that severely affected the company's bottom line. Simply put, Icon had a reputation for taking over businesses and leaving wreckage in his wake, and now he had his sights set on Marvel Comics. Carl Icahn entered the fray by by buying up one third of Marvel's holding bonds at 20 percent of their value. With these bonds, he sued to prevent the merger of Marvel and Toy Biz, as he wanted Marvel for himself, and since the collateral for the bonds, if they defaulted, was Marvel's stock. I, I can could you just that. Meanwhile, due to Marvel being unable to pay back a $700 million de- debt, it was forced to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy with a court date set for December 27, 1996. Harvey Miller, the best bankruptcy lawyer in New York City, Perlman insisted on the best, was hired to represent Marvel Comics. It was filed in courtroom one of the U.S. Bankruptcy Court of Delaware with the Honorable Judge Helen Balick presiding. Chapter 11 was a common technique used by U.S. companies to this day, allowing them to delay debt payments so they could reorganize their finances. However, it was risky as a judge could rule to have the, the, the company uh, broken up or reorganized in ways that you couldn't predict, along with denying any new big deals as no one would work with a company under such a cloud. Plus, if things turned really bad, it could lead to a Chapter 7 in which the company was dissolved and its assets liquidated to pay off its creditors. To help get the merger through, Ike Permitter and A.V.A. Red finally decided to sell their toy biz shares while Marvel tried to avoid debt payments till March of 1997, as the company only had $5 million in cash on hand. However, Ike fought it using its rights as the company's largest bondholder. Instead, he offered to take over the debt in return for ownership of Marvel. The value of the company was placed at $520 to $660 million against $725 million in debt, effectively putting it into the water. On February 25, 1997, Judge Balick 
ruled that the bondholders like Icon could foreclose on the 80% of Marvel's stock Perlman had put up, but prevented the changes to Marvel's board, wanting to hear further arguments. By this point, there were four factions in the fight. Perlman, who wanted the Marvel to merge with Toy Biz with him acquiring 80% of the new company. Carl Icahn, who wanted to claim Marvel from the bonds he held. Chase Manhattan and the banks, who were debating to take Carl Icahn's settlement of this $400 million against this Marvel's uh, $650 million debt, with most holding out for a better deal. Finally, there was Toy Biz, headed by Ike Perlmutter and A.V.A. Rod, who had yet to make their voices heard and decided to cast their lot with Perlman, who would keep their royalty deal with Marvel, which led to the, their Toy Biz having a 24% profit margin, the highest for a toy company at the time. Perlmutter knew that Icahn would find a way to end the deal if he got control of Marvel, and justifiably so, since selling the license for Marvel toys to other toy companies could net Marvel anywhere from 50 to $300 million dollars, the latter number if they were tied to movie or TV shows, something A-Rod was, had, had long been pushing. Meanwhile, Perlmutter and A-Rod found themselves caught in the middle of two billionaire financiers fighting over Marvel Comics, and since their company Toy Biz was a subsidiary of Marvel, they were caught it. They realized their only hope for Toy Biz to survive was merging with Marvel Comics, but Icahn questioned the plan on February 27th of 1997, coming out against it. When rumors persisted his own bank account was running low, though, Icahn sold 20% of his stake of RJR and Nabisco Holdings Corporation for $732 million, a $134 million profit from his original investment. Icahn's net worth at the time was $2 billion, just half that of Perlman, but that didn't make him any less formidable. Toybiz did have a high profit margin of 24%, but much of this was due to having not to pay the royalties on Marvel's products. Thus, Perlman and A-Rod sided with Perlman over Icahn for now, as he could keep that deal in place. However, Perlman decided to hand off its debt when Marvel was undervalued and set terms for March 5, 1997. Icahn agreed to pay $365 million, with the banks receiving $300 million up front, and along with the ownership of the Panini Sticker Company. The rest of the debt will be restructured with a new due date in five years. As a result of all this, Toybus's stocks plummeted to $14 a share. With this happening, Permitter and A-Rod hired a Bernie Newsbaum for $250,000 on March 12, 1997, who advised them to sue Perlman and his appointees to the Toybiz board. However, Newsbaum would then have to leave them over a conflict of interest as his firm, Watchell Lipton, had already represented the banks in this lawsuit. While frustrating and embarrassing, this would be an advantage for Permitter later on, whose next lawyer, Larry Mittman, would remind the law firm that before Newsbond left, he promised they would not do anything to harm Toybiz. Meanwhile, Carl Icahn held a conference to discuss the terms of Marvel's debt, only to cause a walkout when the banks learned just how little they would be actually getting from the $700 million they were owed. Chase Manhattan wanted all their loans paid in full, specifically a $100 million dip, debtor in possession, that was meant to be short-term. This was why many of the banks actually preferred the merger with Toy Biz, as it provided a larger chance of the banks being paid off. However, Icahn believes he controlled Toy Biz, unaware of the Class B, Class A shares arrangement Perlman had made with Perlman and A-Rod. With that, Perlman attempted to get Icahn to agree to the merger, but Icahn countered only if he was in charge, offering Perlman just 40% of the new company. This chafed the Perlmutter, who hadn't had a captain since he served in the Six-Day War and wasn't about to go back. With all this happening, Perlmutter decided on a bold plan. He was going to save Marvel from Carl Icahn, who he called a financial terrorist, by getting control of the company himself.
This would be a daunting task as Ike Perlmutter was only well fit to the tune of $250 million, the Carl Icahn's $2 billion at the time, but he had an ace up his sleeve. The banks wanted their loans paid off, and he knew Icahn was unlikely to do this. For this plan to work, Ike Perlmutter appealed to the banks directly, arguing the best chance they had to get their loans paid off would be the, under the Toy Biz merger. The banks liked the idea, especially when you factor in Icahn's track record destroying previous companies he took over like TWA and U.S. Steel. They wanted time to examine Toy Biz's plan, so they asked Ron Perlman to put up a fuss before handing over Marvel. Perlman was happy to do this that, since he, did, he would need the banks for loans in the future, so keeping them happy in this way was good for business. On March 24, 1997, Judge Baylock ruled that Icahn's committee could immediately take over Perlman's stock in one of the holding companies, but the operating firm Marvel Entertainment remained under bankruptcy stay and decided the Marvel board and management should remain unchanged until further arguments could be heard. All this meant, though, was that Perlman was still in charge on March 28th when Marvel reported a record loss in revenue, losing $464 million in 1996 compared to just $48 million in 1995. Toy Biz, which was tied to Marvel's fortunes, also saw a slight loss of $2.5 million while their shares fell from $12 to $9 a share. All the while, Icahn was petitioning the judge to tear up Toy Biz's licensing agreement with Marvel, calling it criminal. Primero's lawyer, Larry Mittman of uh, Battle Fowler, reached out to Icahn, realizing he was winning in court with hopes of reviving talks of a merger. To help with his pan, Perlmutter hired uh, Terry Savage or Warburg Dylan Reed to hammer out a Marvel Toy Biz merger. Negotiations with Chan Fortan, who worked for the firm that represented the banks, Watcho and Lipton, where Bernard Newsman came from, he made an initial offer of $540 million. To do so, he needed to see Marvel's finances and then provide a detailed offer to start some competitive bids. During this, though, Marvel sent a bill to Toy Biz for unpaid royalties on the Spider-Man CBS cartoon show for $30 million. Savage would go to chase over the bill, only to learn it was Perlman's townhouse who sent it, further complicating the negotiations. On April 28, 1997, Baylock ruled in favor of Icahn to acquire Marvel. It was at this point that Perlmutter, A-Rod, and Mittman offered their plan of 28% of the merged company, with the banks receiving $420 million in cash, along with full ownership of Fleer, Skybox, and Panini. With news of this plan, Marvel stock jumped to 2.25 cents a share, but the one who was left out of this was Carl Icahn, who would lose everything, as instead of the, getting the 80% of Marvel stock as collateral on its bonds, he would receive warrants to buy shares at the prices that, would, that made them worthless. This would be a loss of $70 million in bonds and $40 million in bank debt, thus he would sue to stop the merger, keeping it up for another two years. Icahn was personally angry as well, as he was already assembling his picks for management over Marvel. He countered by offering $365 million to pay off the debt, only half of it was owed to the banks. Frustrated by Permitter's uh, interference in his plan to buy Marvel, Carl Icahn threatened to crush Toy Biz like he did TWA and U.S. Steel, but Ike Permitter countered he should just be willing to invest more in the company, calling a $70 million lost petty cash for someone like Carl Icahn. Permitter's plan was to use Marvel's debt as leverage for the merger, which the banks liked since he ensured a larger payoff. However, the banks also were showing interest in just selling Marvel to someone else. Thus, Ike was trying to settle with Icahn throughout the whole process. Despite this, on May 1st, Icahn had his lawyers fire on federal court to take over Marvel immediately. However, after meeting with Judge Baylock on May 9th, Larry Mittman was able to was happy to report to Permitter that the banks were leaning against Icahn's restructuring plan. 
In many ways, Eichen's reputation was being used against him. While many were afraid of him, many more were afraid to work with him. Using this, Larry Mittman told Forkang on May 16th that after reviewing the books, the merger deal was off, knowing the banks would come back with a better deal over handling Marvel to Eichen. Carl Eichen countered by buying $300 million of Marvel's junk bonds for $70 million and $100 million in bank debt, which he paid $75 million in cash for. However, at this point, Eichen realized just how bad Marvel's finances were and that Perlman had not actually undervalued the company this time. It really was in bad shape. Eichen was impressed about how Perlman had been able to use Marvel to squeeze out nearly $900 million in junk bonds and says those who underwrote those bonds should be shot. To revive Marvel, Eichen planned to produce movies along with cheap comic books to sell in convenience stores, along with investing $365 million to pay Marvel's biggest overdue bills, leaving the company with an operating capital of $185 million. Eichen also made apparent he had a personal reason for the banks to not get their loans back paid in full, as he accused them of being in collusion with Perlman to bankrupt Marvel and using Chapter 11 to acquire the assets. On June 20th of 1997, Judge Balak ruled against Ron Perlman, effectively ending his ownership of Marvel, along with ending the uh, blanket permission for Marvel to pay lawyers' legal bills, as she considered the lengthy negotiations and abuse of the bankruptcy system to, to pad their legal fees. Though he was now in control, Carl Eichen would never visit Marvel offices, but instead picked Joe Calamari, a uh, former Marvel executive from back in the Cadence Industries days when they owned the company in 1968. He took over under Eichen's command, calling for Marvel to create new stories and characters. However, he was very limited in what he could do as Marvel was still under bankruptcy rules, with practically anything larger than a paperclip or a local phone call having to be approved by the banks, the judge, or both. Meanwhile, Ike Permiller was fighting to keep control of toy biz from Eichen, arguing that the Class B shares had converted to Class A once Perlman lost control of Marvel, as the original deal stated. I can believe this didn't matter and even announced a new board for Toy Biz with three empty seats for Permitter A-Rod and CEO Joe Ahern, almost a way to mock them. It was soon joked that Toy Biz was the only company in the United States with two rival boards. Despite this provocative move, Permitter continued to push a merger between the two companies, but I can hate it having partners. He preferred to run it all. Finally, the two parties met on July 9, 1997 to work out an offer with Carl Eichen sweetening the deal to $395 million in cash plus Fleer, Skybox, and Panini to the lenders, which the banks could sell, put up for sale immediately. Toy Biz would end up owning 49% of the new company. While these deals were still being debated, Chase Manhattan did agree to extend Marvel's credit line to pay its employees. Meanwhile, Carl Icahn started to shop Marvel to potential buyers, even trying to make Toy Biz part of the package. After running the numbers, Judge Baylock ruled that the deal must be worked out by September 16th, as she figured that was when Marvel would run out of money. A tentative deal was worked out for $385 million in cash in the Panini Sticker Company, which could net the bank $60 to $7 million in sales for a total of $450 million, amounting to a losing a third of their debts owed from Marvel. Not a total disaster, but no choice or cause for rejoicing. However, Chase then demanded $2 million in payment for a short-term use funds from Marvel, which angered Icahn and Interring. All the while, Toy Biz, Permuter, and A-Rod were left out of the loop, with the next piece of drama occurring on October 1st. Not content to be on the sidelines, Permuter decided to go on the offensive and use his, his best weapon, A.V. A-Rod, and his love for what Marvel could be. A-Rod made a pitch to the banks about Marvel's potential, saying Spider-Man alone was a billion-dollar property pointing to characters' universal appeal. 
Aaron stated the banks were right to invest in Marvel initially, up to $800 million worth, as they knew the company was worth billions if handled properly, and that he and Permitter were the ones to do it. However, to get down to the numbers, Permitter and Aaron admitted they couldn't match Icahn's offer, as they were not nearly as rich as him. They could offer $130 million in cash up front and 40% of the combined company at preferred stock with a dividend of almost 10% a year. Permier then added an additional point, reminding them of Icahn's record of would pass companies. He was offering an eventual full repayment of their loans, and Icahn wasn't. It helped that A-Rod discovered many of the lenders were in fact comic book geeks themselves who finally remembered the days of Stan Lee. When all else failed, it never hurts to apply to one's inner geek. With this and the banks now leaning toward Toy Biz's plan, A-Rod was sure that Icon would fire him, as besides being Toy Biz's shareholder, he is also Marvel's movie and animation executive. Plus, as Toy Biz's chief designer of 160 products, A-Rod was making a few extra million a year off the royalties alone. His own personal attorney advised him to make Icon fire him and not quit. Icon would do this jab three weeks later. By October 7th, over one-third of Marvel's lenders had signed on the Permitter's plan, with Chase Manhattan being the only major holdout, but since they couldn't muster a two-thirds majority, they couldn't side with Icahn now. However, some personal problems would throw a wrench in the court proceedings, as Judge Balak was diagnosed with breast cancer. She would co- courageously continue working, even presiding over a court at 9 a.m. when she had just had radiation treatment at 8 a.m. Despite this, things got testier on the legal side when Carl Icahn threatened to sue Chase Manhattan, claiming they colluded with Ron Perlman to milk Marvel for profit. He could do this as he was still the lead bondholder of Marvel's bonds, while also being Marvel's owner and sole creditor. Nevertheless, Judge Baylock pushed the bankruptcy procedure through, setting reorganization for September 16th, leading to Icahn to try to cut a deal with the banks to cut Toy Biz out. Icahn would lose when the banks didn't side with the two-thirds debt payoff. Meanwhile, the only winners during the whole process were the lawyers on both sides, who were making $250 to $550 an hour working on this case. With lawyers making so much money off of him, Icahn decided to put them to further use. On October 30th, 1997, under orders from Carl Icahn, Marvel sued Ron Perlman, Chase Manhattan, and the other banks. Ike Perlman and A.V.A. Rock with compensatory and punitive damages, alleging they were responsible for Marvel's collapse. It also attacked Toy Biz's licensing deal, which was among the 260 complaints they made, along with calling on Ike and Ivy to lose their Toy Biz board. Most of the lawsuit was targeted at Ron Perlman, who they claimed used Marvel to sell junk bonds to wrench themselves upwards of $266 million worth. However, this finally became too much for Judge Bailock, who decided to retire in January of 1998, passing on the case to Judge Roderick McKeevy of the Federal District. McKelvey was originally only involved with the bankruptcy during the appeals process, starting in November of 1997, but Bailock's retirement, he became the presiding judge in the case. He was a baseball fan who liked to use metaphors describing his job, stating he was the umpire who called balls and strikes during the court proceedings. He believed prop rulings was the fastest way to settle things and suggested monthly court dates till February of 1998. During the hearings, McKelvey pointed out that Marvel got worse under Icahn, going from a negative $250 million in value to $357 million, and believed the company needed a court-appointed trustee to shepherd it through bankruptcy. Things were turning sour for Icahn even after he filed his lawsuit, as Toy has managed to get two-thirds of the banks behind their plan now. On December 3rd, Icahn's lawyers countered by asking instead for an examiner and blamed both Toy Biz and Chase for the continued disputes. 
McKelvey got so frustrated with the lawyers in this case, he would hang up on them, and they later objected to having a trustee appointed. McKelvey told them to leave since he wouldn't allow them to build them for their time. On December 22nd, McKelvey appointed a Chapter 11 trustee, John J. Gibbons, a retired federal judge who reportedly never read a Marvel comic. Once appointed, it became apparent Carl Icahn was no longer welcome at Marvel and he would never return. As trustee, Gibbons had control over Marvel's property, though he did ask the current president, Joe Calamari, to stay on for now. However, things got worrisome for everyone involved when Gibbons said he would break up Marvel if he felt he could get the larger value in doing so, except the banks, since that meant they would likely get their loans paid off. In an interesting twist, Gibbons actually made a future lawsuit against Ron Perlman as part of Marvel's value. Since he reasoned such a lawsuit could net the company 30 to $100 million and even stated Perlman's actions varied on being criminal and how he used loans to purchase the companies. Ultimately, Gibbons valued Marvel at $475 million and decided to sell Fleer Skybox for $10 million, adding to Marvel's dwindling accounts, which had fallen below $30 million. Gibbons didn't ask Judge McKelvey if he could use his own firm for the procedures, but McKelvey objected due to his past connections to Chase Bank. Gibbons immediately appealed this. On March 25th, 1998, Gibbons won his appeal while Judge McKelvey objected to Carl Icahn playing both sides of the bankruptcy proceedings as he was both Marvel's debt holder and the owner of the company. On March 30th, McKelvey ruled Ike was controller of uh, toy bids, though Gibbons found himself arguing against it as it lessened Marvel's value. Permanent countered this would hurt Toy Biz, if not so, and the judge agreed if Toy Biz agrees to put up more money for Marvel. All the while, Marvel stock would be delisted from the New York Stock Exchange in April of 1988. Meanwhile, Gibbons started to try to sell Marvel, reaching out to everyone from Warner Brothers, MGM, Golden Books, and Harvey Comics. The closest he came was with Sony who offered $400-600 million, but the deal never went through. Something to think about decades later now that Marvel's trying to get their rights back from Sp- to Spider-Man. With the proceedings continuing, Gibbons urged that Icon and Toybed settle for everyone's sake. And we will leave you here for now, but join me again next week when we conclude the three-part Battle for Marvel Comics as the, as the ultimate victor of the owner of Marvel finally emerges and, that will, that, and their leadership of the company will not only change shape comic books, but entertainment in general. that you enjoy. We'll cover all your favorite shows and movies with maybe a few surprises along the way. And you, yes you, will have opportunities to be on our show on a regular basis. That's right. You've got the Zoom Pro account and we're going to use it. So be ready. Find us at nerdblisspodcast.com and esonetwork.com and on all the socials at nerdblisspod. Nerdbliss. Listen up. And now is July 8th, 2021. Time for the favorite comic of the week. Batman Fortnite Zero Point Number 6 by uh, Christoph Gage and Riley Brown, which concludes this uh, surprisingly excellent uh, six-part miniseries as Batman and Catwoman are still trapped in Fortnite and they have to come up with a new way to escape it. All this, even though uh, well, one of them may not feel like escaping this time. 
Christoph Gage does a great job just taking what should be just a simple gimmick tied into a video game and made a really great Batman story that actually plays a good tribute to Fortnite as well and working in the game mechanics and so forth. And it's just a really good story in general. It really gets into the Batman-Catwoman relationship and some other great characters and so forth. And uh, Riley Brown's art is equally great because it invokes the graphics of the Fortnite game, but still has a nice little gritty style to it. It's perfect for a Batman story. And all in all, this has been probably the best Batman story I've read all year. So, yeah, at the end of the year, when people are talking about what's the best Batman story or one of the best comic books uh, reads all year, it's going to be Batman-Fortnite. Surprise, surprise. But... When you hire uh, professionals like Christoph Gaze and Riley Brown to do it, uh, you end up with some pretty good stuff. And especially since this issue ends with a cliffhanger that hints to maybe some more stories coming out, then I can't wait. So, yeah, most surprising uh, comic book of the year, Batman Fortnite Zero Point, number six. Uh, Definitely check it out. It must read. And with that, though, we'll uh, conclude this second part of the Battle for Marvel Comics. Join me again next week when we go to the third and concluding chapter of this story. And until then, go out and enjoy yourself. Good comic book.